We're in a series on David called the son of Jesse, which is what he was. He was the son of Jesse, and we're going to be looking at a unique uh, passage in regards to this actually is a throwback to uh, a little bit of the backstory to David in regards to the first king. David was not the first king. He was the second one to King Saul. So 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 28, verses 1 to 19. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you know, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to the servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that's what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why? Have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. And therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why do you then ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David." Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Let's pray. We also want to remember uh, the Hildenbrandt family who has... Uh, lost a father this weekend. And so, Jesus, we first of all thank you for your word, that your word is true, pure, living, active. It is sharp 
sharp enough to cut out our depressions, our anxieties, our fears, but healing enough to fill them back up again with things that we truly need. And so that's what we'd ask for the Hildenbrand family this weekend. That as they grieve and as they consider a life, uh, that they will be encouraged by peace that doesn't make sense to anyone else of this world. That you would give them um, good family moments, good memories, celebration of life, Jesus. We know when those passed away, Jesus, you died, you, you, you cried. It hurt. And so, Jesus, we know that you know how this feels more than anyone else. So we would ask your comfort of your spirit. We would also ask Jesus now as Aaron, your servant, comes and delivers your word, that you would give him your word and we would hear it as such. We would hear it as the word to us from our holy God, an awesome God. So give Aaron the correct words, the passion, and the wisdom to say them well. We ask for these things for your glory and for our good. Amen. Thanks, Trevor. Okay. Who's heard that story before? Some of you, I know, are maybe for, for unfamiliar with your Bibles. You're learning your Bibles, and you're like, that's in my Bible? And I, I'm excited, maybe a little bit too much, to say yes. Uh, and for many of you who know that it's in your Bible, I'm sure that you've never received teaching on this passage. Now, I want to highlight a couple things before we, we dig in. Uh, one of them is I've had so many interactions in the last few weeks from our church family saying, you know, this series is really just hitting the themes of my life and has been really encouraging to me. And so we are, we're just going to slow down, add a few weeks, uh, allow ourselves to sink into the text and the story a bit longer. We're still going to be moving at a gallop. However, it's going to allow us opportunity to look at a few passages like this that otherwise you would go by them and go, wait a minute, I have questions. And so I'm looking forward to uh, addressing a few of those passages today. And if you were with us last week, we looked at Psalms 51, which is really the prayer journal from David speaking to the low light of his life where we see that David isn't just this awesome figure that, that is being held in juxtaposition to Saul as this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, but actually that David is deeply flawed as well. We see that David, in his most regrettable moment in life, he betrays, he deceives, he murders, he tries to cover it up, and in all this happens in rapid succession, and, and we... As we looked at Psalm 51 and we see his, really the, the heart behind his repentance to the crimes of his hands and the crimes of his planning, but also we see something that I think Trevor pointed out well as he taught on it last week, that the erosion of David's heart likely took place long before those events. And so even though we're jumping back in the storyline, these things haven't taken place yet, Saul is still with us in the storyline as we're jumping in the text today. Uh, we're doing that for a reason, that you would see something here. That, that the, the slipping, the erosion, the falling back of David's heart is taking place, and everything is coming to a razor's edge in chapter 28 of our story. 
In fact, let me catch you up here, which is roughly uh, chapters 24 to 28, uh, and just let you see what's happening in the text. So David is on the run from King Saul. Saul, who God said in chapter 15, I am taking the, the kingdom away from you. I'm giving it to another. And as David rises and he sees that the Spirit of God is with David, that God's favors with David, everything David touches is blessed. People are singing songs that, that Saul's killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands, Saul's heart grows bitter, angry, and moves against him. And now he's chasing David in, in an effort to take his life. And multiple times in the text, as if the author is trying to hint at something, we see this pattern and cyclical process take place. David is, is cornered. Saul is kind of trying to root him out. And God provides an opportunity for David to sneak up on Saul. Once, as Saul's relieving himself in a cave, that's another story for another day, Saul cuts a corner of his robe off. And another time where Saul is sleeping amongst his guard and, and David sneaks in with his men and they take from the head of, of Saul his spear and his water jug. And later on, in both cases, they kind of appear in the wilderness and they're like, hey, we're right here and we have no intention to harm you. Why is it that you're pursuing us like wild animals? In fact, as proof that we would do nothing to harm you, look. Moments ago, we were so close, we could have put a knife in your back, and yet we didn't. Here's the robe, the piece of your robe that has been cut. Here is the staff, or sorry, the spear and the jug that were sitting beside you as you lay to sleep. And, and Saul's heart goes, oh my goodness, I need to get my, my, my heart in order. And then the pattern is this, his heart grows hard, and he again pursues David. And so what we see actually taking place just before this chapter is that in 27, David is looking at the, the theme and the pattern that's going on in this story as well. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to be running from Saul the rest of my life. Where can I go in all of Israel where this man will not pursue me? Surely if I keep hiding in the nooks and the crannies. And by the way, he's hiding with some 600 soldiers and their families. It's not like he can find one room and just lay down there for a while. There's no secret where David is hiding. He's basically saying, it's a matter of time before we go to war with Saul. And God has told me this, and David in his heart knows it to be true. God anointed me to be the next king, but he did not tell me to remove the current one. I'm an heir, not a revolutionary. And so David, and we begin to see something of his heart moving away. He says, I don't think God can provide for my safety if I stay in Israel. I'm going to go to the Philistines. Now, there's, there's irony in this story. He goes to Achish, which is the king of Gath, which if you go all the way back to when David is introduced to us in the story, Gath is the hometown of Goliath. Of all the places to hide out, David, why there? I'm going to go to the house of my enemies and I'm going to hide there. And actually we see in chapter 27, David is welcomed with open arms because he defects. And the king goes, the champion of Israel, who they sing about, that he's killed tens of thousands, he wants to live and, and be with us? Yes, I'll take that guy. 
In fact, he's got his own troop with him. He's, and so they give him the, the, the town of Ziklag, which they're like, you can live there. You can settle there. That's all yours. And David begins an entrepreneurial enterprise of raiding the, uh, essentially it would be the allies of the Philistines, killing every man, woman, and child in their town so that no one could report what he's doing. And in that space, he and his men get rich. It's not a good look on David. In fact, everything in the text, as it builds out in chapter 28, is saying this. The armies are mounting once more. This is a familiar scene. It's meant to draw us back to that moment where David, the little boy, stands against the champion of the Philistines. And yet, now, the armies are mounting, and the, the new champion under Achish, king of the Philistines, is David. God is intervening at a critical moment in the story. And we see that Saul's heart is wavering. Why? Because not only is there battle, and by the way, what does a king do in battle? You go to battle. When he's like, God, I need to know what to do. It's very clear. You, you have a job. Show up, go to war. But he is shaking in his boots. And I would argue this because he knows the Lord has been, he's removed his blessing from me and the champion is no longer in my midst. In fact, whether he knows it or not, he's standing on the other side. And it's in that space he goes to seek God's face. Now, if I were to tee up this entire chapter, it would simply be this. What do you do when the Lord seems silent? Or maybe even stronger, what do you do when the Lord is silent? Because the text is very clear. God is not speaking to Saul. And I know that in a room this size, I also know many of you personally, that there are moments and there are seasons in your life right now where you're like, God seems really quiet to me. In fact, we might even feel like God is completely against us. Like, read for a moment again, soak in verses 1 and 2 of the text. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know that your, what your servant can do. That's David going, you got this. There is nothing in the text that is leading us to have a confidence that David is planning some sort of betrayal, some sort of ruse. You know, when the fighting gets thickest, he's going to turn around and, and actually fight for Israel. Everything in the text to this po point is leading us to believe, you know what, I'm going to go to war and I'm going to find Saul on the battlefield. I'm going to take care of this myself. I've had enough. And we see that even when God seems silent, he is intervening in the story. Everything is building to chapter 28 on a razor's edge. Do you not see it? And in this moment, I love that, okay, we, we have this really weird thing that's being built out where, where actually some of your Bibles might say the witch of Endor as a subtitle. Anyone have that Bible? Because if you do, I keep that Bible. I think that's awesome. It, it, it's, it's like, what is going on? It's, it's reminding us of key information that we should pick up because not only is it important, it's going to be important for our understanding. It says, now, Samuel had died. He's actually been dead for a few chapters. But it's just reminding the, the reader. Uh, this will be important in a few verses. But moreover, Samuel was the guy who was a straight shooter for the Lord. 
And the last time that Saul spoke to Samuel in chapter 15, Samuel's words to Saul were, God has taken the kingdom from you. And as he walked away, Saul falls on his face, grabs the robe of Samuel, pleading, don't let it be so. Change this. Can you at least say something to God on my behalf? And part of the robe which Saul was clinging to rips off of Samuel's robe, and he's left holding the torn piece. And then in just perfect dramatic fashion, Samuel's like, in the same manner, the kingdom will be torn from you. Like, that's just good storytelling. Everything is building to this. Do you not see it? Like the author is trying to help us see something. There is a pattern building. There, it's coming to a head in this chapter. And it's coming to this moment where he's, he's I got to hear from God. When you are in distress, you will think this way. I got to hear from God. And he says, he sought the Lord. He did this through dreams, through Urim, I'll get to that in a moment, and through the prophets. How many of you, when you're desperate, you're like, God, just, just show me. Give me a vision. Give me a dream. Maybe you're, you're praying before your head hits the pillow, and you're like, God, tonight, just show me. I got to know. We see many times in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, God speaks through visions and dreams, and he gives great clarity and direction, and Saul's just going, come on, I'm the king. I need help. Speak to me. Nothing. And then Urim, uh, if you don't know this already, it, it appears multiple times, especially uh, through the judges and kings, Urim and Thummim were likely these two objects that would be held in the pocket of the high priest, likely two stones. And as they were cast, the priest would be able to discern from the, what the Lord is saying, kind of like, yes, no, call back later. We don't know exactly what that looks like because it's been lost to time, but the Lord allowed for that to be a way in which the rulers, where kings, where judges, where high priests could come and ask of the Lord important things. And oftentimes it was things like, should I go into battle? If I go, will we, will we win? God, are you for us? And oftentimes the Lord would speak to the king in this way. And so we see that, that Saul's using all the avenues he has. So he goes to the priest and he's like, okay, let's do the thing. And every time it keeps coming back, call back later. No response. And then he goes to the prophets. The role of a prophet was to stand in between in, in the sense of they would speak on God's behalf to the people. Nothing. Like this is unheard of. This isn't that God appears to be silent. God, God is silent. It's like Saul not talking. And so what does Saul do? Now, there, before we, we, we jump into what he does, I want, I want to be very clear on something. God has spoken to Saul. He spoke to him in chapter 14 and 15. In chapter 14, he's like, Saul, I've got a very important assignment for you. I want you to go, and it was actually just war. I want you to go and eradicate a group of people that have been opposition and rebellion to me. And, and you need to do this, not for any glory or, or, or worth or value of your own. I want you to do it in my name because I am a just God. And he goes and he does it in his own name. He acts like all the kings of the neighboring nations around him. And he defiles the word of God and actually rebels against it and doubles down saying it's okay. 
And so God sends Samuel to arrive on the scene in chapter 15 where he says, because of this rebellious heart, because you've been stubborn, because you've been shaping God's word and his law and the role that he's given you in your own image and not his, I am taking it from you. I am tearing the kingdom from you today. Saul's had a lot of time to hear what God is saying. And God was saying essentially this, it's time for you to resign and repent. And yet we see the pattern of Saul's heart was stubborn. He's going to do everything he can to cling on to his kingship. Everything he can to cling on to what he saw as the more desirable outcome for his life. Now, now I need to say this. Sometimes when the Lord seems silent, it's simply that you've gone really far away. Distance makes things hard to hear. And that's not just in a literal sense. That's in a relational sense too. Whether you have a close friend, a marriage, a colleague, you know that if relationally things are strained, you don't hear each other very well. You miss what the other person is trying to say. You miss the nuances and the understanding. You assume things that aren't there. You might even hear things that are negative that were never implied in their communication, or you might miss it altogether. And that's what we see happening in the text. By no means has God abandoned Saul. Saul has abandoned God. And God's activity with him is simply reflecting that. If you want to hear from the Lord when he seems silent, I would invite you to do this. Go back to where you heard him last. That's what we see happening over and over and over in the text. I, I believe this to be true, not just because it is evident throughout the rest of scripture but because it's revealed and implied through the pattern of the story god is gracious slow and merciful he's like saul come on man i told you resign step down and yet he clings to his kingship he holds fast everything about the story is building to this point where saul's like i gotta hang on to this in fact we see that If you evaluate the distance between how we feel and where God is, we'll often misinterpret what's happening. Because we'll, we'll, we'll think of it this way. God seems far, therefore God's abandoned me. When in reality it's God seems far, I need to move closer to him. If God seems silent, I invite you, wh where's the last time you heard his voice? And that might be a physical location, but more likely it's, it's relational. When's the last time you spent in his word? When, when have you really given yourself to prayer? When have you really sought him for him? Because the other thing about this text that becomes so clear, Saul is not seeking God for God. If he was, he knows what to do. God, I've made a train wreck of my kingship. I need to resign and repent. God, would you forgive me? Would you, would you help me correct here? But instead, what's he really seeking? He's seeking reassurance. Tell me it's all going to be okay. It's very evident in the text. Now, I think there's, there's something hilarious about, you know, if, if God's not going to talk to me, I'll seek other avenues to find advice. And, and yet, who's the name that he calls up? I'm going to go to Samuel. That guy always has nice things to say. You know, when God seems silent, 
when our life seems in distress and directionless, it's amazing how vulnerable we are to seek guidance from all sorts of things. See, he's just wanting that reassurance. And I don't care how old you are. I don't care what stage of life you're in. We all want a relationship with somebody who's just going to sit with us, hold our hand, and be like, it's going to be fine. I got to visit somebody who passed away last week and be one of the last pastoral visits before their passing. And I marvel at this every time. I've, I've, as a pastor, you have this privilege more often than most to sit at somebody's bedside when they're reflecting on their life. They know that their time is coming. And you speak words of comfort. You speak into the value of their life. But everybody essentially is looking to you for what? Reassurance. Was it okay? I hear the high points. You know what? This part of my life was good. I hear the low points. You know, these, these are the memories I wish I didn't have. And then I, I hear the final verdict. How am I going to land the plane and go, job well done? And when they have faith, I love going like, hey, that's not your call anyway. Jesus declares that over you. And when they don't, I hear all the bargaining that we do. Is anyone going to hold my hand and say this is okay? That's all he's looking for. There's this big, bad, scary army. I've had to fight them off multiple times. And by the way, never do we see with Saul this courageous, battle-ready kind of general figure. He's always kind of like, oh, I hope this works out. And he's in that place again. And he's not looking back on his history going, you know what, God's been gracious, God's been good, he's always maintained this. He's looking back going, I know the Lord has left me. The moment the kingdom was torn from me, all my peace left and a spirit of torment entered and took up residence in me. And I need assurance. When we want that, we will look anywhere for it. And, and here's the thing. Scripture is very clear. There is no place for occult practices in the life of a Christian, period. You might find it like, really, you're saying that today? I have to. Because within millennial and Gen Z, one of the highest growing interests for spiritual seeking people is occult practice. It is far outpacing any other spiritual practice out there. So if you don't know what generation is that, that's my age and younger. Looking to things for answers in life that they don't have. In fact, when we look at this, all that we see in this text that might seem ancient, archaic, strange, that is prevalent and continuing today. I was talking with a lady maybe about a month ago, and we were talking about prayer. And she was like, I just feel like when I pray, God doesn't hear me. And so we were talking about this and encouraging her. And by the end of our conversation, about an hour in, I'm like, man, I've really done a great job. And then she's like, oh, and then sometimes I do something else to really encourage me. I'm like, what's that? Oh, tarot cards. And I'm like, oh, you have to start all over again. And I asked her, do you, does that not mess with your relationship with God? She's like, well, why? They're just cards. I'm like, no. You see, scholars will talk about this text, and they'll, they'll see it on a spectrum, and I'm going to tell you where I land, but it's the same today. There are, there are places out there where, you know, it's all charlatan. Uh, pageantry, it's, it's, it's charlatan work, it's just trying to get you to believe in something, what, to reassure you. That's what your horoscope is. That's what a fortune cookie is. 
Well, you know you've crossed the line no matter what it is if you open that up and you read it and you go, oh, that's, that's my hope for today. And, and I'll be honest, there's been times where I, at the end of the Chinese buffet, I go, oh, thank goodness. What I do tomorrow will turn out well. <sighs> Put that in my pocket. Now, I'm not casting my hope in that, but... If that's what you're looking to for your reassurance, be careful. Because we've been given that in God's word. So many times I believe this to be true for Christians. I'm praying and God is silent. What has he said? And it's like, no, he's spoken really clear. It's just in the Bible and you haven't opened it. You know, they'll say things like, you know, should I do this or should I do that? And one is clearly disobedience to God and one is clearly not. And it's like, well... I don't think he has to give you a new revelation because the revelation that speaks this very well is right here. Maybe the thing you need to hear is somebody who loves Jesus in your life to say, uh, let's go back to the foundations. Where was the last time you heard his voice? Where's the reassurance that you're looking for? You know, reassurance is not always going to tell you it's going to be fine. Reassurance is speaking to, you know what? There's one who will be with you even in the mess. I believe and it's speculation because we never got to see it in Saul's life. But I believe that if Saul went, God, you're right, i got to resign and repent, he would have been like, okay, I'm still with you. Not king. I gave that to somebody else. But we never get to see that chance in Saul's life. Even to this moment where all hope is lost, he remains stubborn. In fact, what we didn't read at the end of the text is, you know what, the only one who gives him comfort is the medium who feeds him before he dies. Like, read that with a somber, oh, really? In fact, what we see here, as we look into the text, a couple ways we can look at it, is either we can read it at face value, we can read it like this woman is just being a charlatan, we can read it as though somehow this is demonic, but I, I'm going to invite you to read it at face value. Take it as the text intends. That, that she go, he goes to the medium. By the way, very clear in the text what that is. Somebody who stands in the middle to allow somebody living to speak with the dead. And if you're like, this is all new. Is this in the Bible? The Bible speaks to a picture of what, what the afterlife looks like in the Old Testament. It's a place called Sheol. All the dead go there. Except... We even see in Luke 16, Jesus refers to the place that's called Abraham's bosom. I didn't name it. Where the righteous dead go, but it's in the same locale. Where one, it's kind of like a peaceful waiting room, and the other, it's a place of torment. But everybody goes there. Those who are in Abraham's bosom, it's like they're covered with the IOUs of their sin. And and until the completed work of Jesus, that cashes in what is needed so that they can be free. Everybody's hanging out there. That's why Samuel can say, uh, you'll be with me. Maybe not in the place of the righteous dead, but you'll be in the same locale. That's a heavy statement. And you might ask, well, does the Bible say we can have interaction with? And, and you know what? 99% of the time, no, but we have this one text. But we also have you know, the transfiguration. Or Moses and Elijah, for a brief moment, are on the mountain. They appear, and they're, they're speaking to and conversing with Jesus, and then they're gone. What's that about? You know, it's not meant to tell us something about ghosts and the afterlife. I believe it's meant to say this. Even, 
evil and darkness, which is meant to twist and manipulate truth, cannot step outside the ultimate reality of God's truth. I believe in this moment, and there's, there's some interesting stuff here. Saul, who likely through religiously motivated uh, means, he casts out, he banishes all mediums and necromancy, which is like, you know, that's, that's good. It's actually not in accordance with God's law because in Leviticus, anyone who practices these things should be put to death. But, it, you know, it, it's hiding in plain sight. God's not talking to me. Where do I got to go? Maybe the other team has something to say. Says to his attendants, does anybody know? And it's like, oh, yeah. There's a lady just around the block. And he, as he goes to her, and she's like, is this a sting operation? You know, we, we all know that we've been put out of business. Oh, no, no, we're here. We're legit customers. You know why I think this is real? I'll present my case. One, when, when all of a sudden she's startled, some commentators would read that as if she's surprised it worked. Like every day until today, she's just been rolling her eyes back and making a deep voice and being like, I see your grandmother. I don't think that's the case. You know what I think happened? He says, bring up Samuel. And Samuel shows up and goes, what's happening, Saul? Saul? The Saul? This is a sting operation. You're here to take me out. No, 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 no. In his stubbornness, in his waywardness, he's like, no, 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 I'm dialed in. The reason I don't think it's a demonic activity, what the practice is, but I don't think that what's happening here is an illusion. Samuel gets it bang on. Couldn't have been fake, because why? He repeats exactly what he said in chapter 15. Does this please the Lord? Absolutely not. Is God like, all right, we can tell truth through crooked means? Absolutely. And here it is. Saul, I've already told you. And now just let me reemphasize. You're wanting reassurance and that you're not going to get any because your heart is stubborn. It's hard. It's far from me. In fact, look at verse 17 to 19. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Like, check your heart for a moment. When you think God is silent... What are you willing to do to hear what you want to hear? Let me give you an example for a moment. For Christmas, my daughters were given uh, fish, those little betta fish, like five bucks. I didn't buy them. My my brother and and my sister-in-law bought them because you know what they were thinking? Great, if we can buy something that my my brother and his wife have to take care of, that would be really funny. So, so my, my two daughters became the proud owners of fish, and we became the caretakers of those fish. Which, by the way, worst pet ever. All work, no pleasure. And so, well, most of you on Boxing Day and the following days enjoyed sleeping in. Kids 
playing nicely with their toys. Uh, for the next two mornings, we woke up to the sounds of weeping and gnashing of teeth as our daughter's fish laid topside, belly up in the tank. Same daughter, two fish. And I was suspicious at first, but you know what? Of the two daughters that I would really think would have foul play, it was the, the less suspicious. So I was like, okay, this is probably a mistake. And, and as you get the fish, you're given this pamphlet. It's like a one-sided piece of paper. Like, these are, the, these are the laws. These are the things that you need to do to keep this fish alive. And, and clearly, we failed twice. And so we're going to the pet store to... You know, it's a really weird interaction, by the way, to, to go to the pet store that you just bought the $5 fish and be like, here's a receipt for the fish. Can I get a new fish? <laughs> and it's an even weirder feeling when, when the lady who works in the fish department is like, well, did you read the pamphlet? Yeah, I read the pamphlet. Do you know the pamphlet? It's like five things. I memorized the pamphlet. Okay, well, only if you promise to take really good care of this next fish will we give you a fish. <laughs> My wife and I were not willing to make that promise. <laughs> like, we're going... Our track record would say, uh, we can't do that. <laughs> and then also, we're like, we don't like the condescending tone of the fish lady. <laughs> so what did we do to escape that? We went to a different store. <laughs> and, you, and you would think, right? Like, these fish, there's like 500 of them in little solo cups on the shelf. You're like, any idiot can take care of this. Well, apparently, we struggle. Um, <laughs> But we buy another fish, and, and I'm thinking we've escaped the distress of our guilt, and what do they give us as we're leaving the door? The same pamphlet. This is how you take care of the fish. These are the truths of fish law that you've been trying to escape. You see, you can't escape what God is trying to say. And what he's trying to say is this. I spoke to you way back here. If you want to listen to me, go back and do that thing. And, and the distress you feel is not from my voice. The distress you feel is from your disobedience. If that's you today, I'm just inviting you to do two things. One, where did you hear God's voice last? Go back there. And what did he say? Go be obedient to that. You see, he wanted so desperately to avoid these things that when Samuel speaks to him, he speaks he speaks the same thing over again. And by the way, if you don't see it, I'm going to point it out for you. Verse 14. Your, the translation we read, ESV, it says that he saw uh, Elohim. That's Hebrew, and it's translated God in your Bibles. I don't like that. It, it, it should be translated spirit or lesser God. It's the idea that, that this is, this is otherworldly, rising up. And, and what's the evidence that this spirit is Samuel? It says that he's wearing a robe. And, and what does Saul do? He gets down on his face. He's like, that's the guy. The two descriptions. He's old, check. He's got the robe. That's him. What do you think Saul is seeing? I would argue chapter 15. He's seeing the same robe torn at its hem. That's him. And he gets into the same posture. I remember pleading for my kingdom. I remember pleading for reassurance. I remember pleading from the thing that was torn from me. And he's wearing the same robe. And I wonder in that moment if Saul was able to put all the pieces as they came snapping back into his memory. And Samuel's like, didn't God say? Like, didn't we go over this? Not your kingdom, giving it to David. And then all these moments where, I remember when David handed me back a piece of my robe that he had cut. 
I remember when David gave me back the spear and the water jug that he had taken from me as I slept. And what does that all symbolize? I think the robe is obvious. It's explained in the text. But what about the spear? What about the water jug? A spear is often depicted as the king's authority. You'll see ancient images of kings sitting on their throne holding a spear. It spoke to, you know, I have authority, I have power, I have strength. But what about a water jug? Most commentators would would point that out. Like, this isn't a common object. This was very personal to Saul. Something that he kept on his person. Something that he kept close to help sustain his life. Not too dissimilar in size and use from the horn of oil that symbolized his anointing and then was anointing of David. David has taken your kingdom. David has taken your authority and strength. David has taken your anointing. Because of your stubbornness, your disobedience, I am giving it to him. I wonder if it all came back in rapid succession and Saul knew exactly where he stood and yet his heart was hard, unwilling to repent. You see, some of us wonder, how can the biblical narrative allow this repetitious cycle of God speaking our disobedience and failure and him taking away his kingdom again and again and again? And yet, in the person and the work of Jesus, he could never be more clear, never be more precise, never have such a reassuring tone. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm right here. And yet, what does he do? He is torn away. He is ripped out of the fabric of life so that we can get his kingdom. That's the gospel. And I get this comment every now and then. Why does Mission Hill always go back to the gospel every Sunday? It's because that's where God speaks most clearly. And if you can't hear that, forget anything else. Where does God speak to you first? There. And so we got to remember that. we got to attune our hearing to that. we got to uh, allow that to be what resonates with us first so that the rest can ring clear. And what I love is this. You know, in 1 Peter 3, it says that Jesus descended to hell and he proclaimed his victory. I, I picture this. Proclaimed his victory to those who were in rebellion to him took off the IOUs to the righteous dead waiting him who are now by his side. Because he's like, the kingdom starts today and it won't be torn from you. If you feel like God is silent, probably what is happening is you've been building your own kingdom. And you need to let that go and take hold of the kingdom that God has. And because of his son, it won't be denied you. And you know what's amazing? We, we read this story, and like, can I just say what we're all thinking? Wouldn't it be cool to talk to a dead person? Like, come on. You're in church, but you can admit it. Like, yeah, like, that's so neat. That's like, you know what? To hear from somebody who went to the other side and came back to tell us everything we're aching to know, oh, if only we had that. We do. That's your New Testament. And it's a gift to you to say, no, no, this is reality. This is life as you need to see it. 
This is what Jesus has given for you. And if you are not hearing that, I would invite you to, as we spend, as we wrap up, as we close, we pray, God, where am I giving my audience to? Where, am, where are my ears being trained to hear? Help them to come back and hear your voice. Let me pray that for you as the band comes up. Father, I pray uh, your word would remain in our hearts. Everything else, allow that to fall to the wayside. Forgive us, Jesus, that in our distress, we run so far from truth to find anything that would speak to what our hearts desire for reassurance. God, we'll, we'll, in those moments of desperation, cling to almost anything, God. It's where we're at our most vulnerable. So I pray if anyone in this room is in that place, you protect them. Your Holy Spirit would speak to them most clearly right now. I am not silent. You can't hear me because you've, you've wandered farther and farther from my voice. Come back to where you've heard me last. Come back to the gospel. Allow its truth to ring in your ears. To speak where we need to repent and where we need to act in obedience. And Jesus, may we continue to be greater attuned to your voice of comfort, encouragement, and hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.